following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to Luke 24, uh, 1 through 35. And uh, we're going <laughs> we're gonna to get into it today. You may have expected there to be more pleasantries at the beginning, but we're going to get into God's Word. That's, that's what I'm here for, so I'm excited. Luke 24, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 35. Uh, many of you have probably heard me say that Christmas is cool, but for me, as a follower of Jesus, I think Easter is the most exciting day of the year. Now, I want you to know, I'm not downplaying, many of you are Christmas fans out there ready to fight me. Don't fight me, all right? I'm not trying to downplay at all the wonder and the importance of Jesus being born, but the crescendo of God's redemptive symphony is when he rose from the grave. And you might be wondering why, why are you saying that? Well, I think Paul gave us a good summary reasoning in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read you just these couple verses. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Did you hear that? Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection, friends, it's, it's the crown jewel Upon the crown of the gospel, it's, it's beautiful. And the entire validity of the Christian faith, the entire hope of each Christian believer hangs on whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the grave like he said he would. And that's one of the reasons I would, I would humbly submit to us today that the claims of Christianity deserve at least an honest consideration. Because If some ancient Hebrews had decided to cook up this story to start some new religion, it would have been much safer to claim some mystical and unverifiable spiritual resurrection of Christ and just tell everyone that they just just need to believe it. But instead, what we have is this audacious claim that Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was crucified publicly for all to see, and then had a spear driven into his heart to confirm he was dead, that he physically rose from death three days later. That's something you can check on, right? A mystical, spiritual, ethereal resurrection would have been something that, well, you're just, just going to have to believe it. But what we're going to read today is, man, eyewitnesses could check, is, is the tomb open or closed? Is the tomb empty or full? (laughs) Right? Man, this is different than just something you make up. If you're going to make something up, you'd cover your back a little better, I think. The fact was confirmed by hundreds of eyewitnesses and the fact that in 2022, we are still here celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And in the very least... It leads to the logical conclusion that something, something momentous enough happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that it shouldn't be dismissed without at least thorough investigation. And 
And I would say a thorough investigation has led many to the conclusion that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, which means if, if he did that, if that's true, it means he was God in the flesh and that this God loves us and designed us to flourish in right relationship with him. And, that, and this of course means that not being in right relationship with him leads to the same pain and agony that any creature experiences when ignoring its purpose for existence. I've used this example before, but it's been a while. It's not unlike a horse that decides in its precious head that it would like to live like a monkey. You see, the horse was built for life on the ground. But what would happen if a horse decides that fields are boring and it wants to live in the trees? Well, there's a couple possibilities of what might happen. It will either try and try to climb trees and and live a life of utter disappointment, or worse than that, if it succeeds in getting itself up in a tree, it'll be stuck there or fall, leading to its own destruction. What am I saying? Well, to say it succinctly, a human trying to live without God is like a horse trying to live in a tree. And being a tree horse is not going to go that well. (laughs) Is it? I think the last time I used that example, I said, I'm I'm deputizing all of you to be able to go around to brothers and sisters in Christ and ask them, hey, you being a tree horse, man, knock it off. It's not good for you. The big idea here, friends, is that we were made for relationship with God, but sin got in the way of that relationship. And in order for God to be both perfectly just and merciful, Jesus, the eternal son, took on flesh. He lived a perfect life and then took the penalty we deserved by dying on the cross. But then three days later, he rose from the grave and in so doing offers us the righteousness he earned if we will trust him by faith. Friends, Christ's death paid the bill we owed for our sin and his resurrection is the receipt So today, we are celebrating the culmination of our king's grand plan of redemption. And there is nothing in this world that is more worthy to be celebrated. What are you saying, Pastor Vince? I'm saying you're at the most lit party in the world right now. Does it feel lit? It feels lit to me. Come on. Weren't we supposed to have confetti today? Where's Pastor Jordan? I thought right then was when the confetti bazooka was about to, you know, it was about to go, that kind of stuff. No? We nixed that? Okay. They don't always tell me the plan, so I thought that's what we were doing. (laughs) Okay, Let's let's read together Luke's account of the resurrection, and let's let our hearts be stirred anew by it. We're in, I, I asked you to turn to Luke 24, I hope you got there. Uh, I know I'm reading 35 verses and that makes some of you nervous because you've got a ham waiting on you, but I promise we're going to make it through this in time for you to get to that ham and some of those angeled eggs that I'm sure are waiting for you. Well, you don't call them deviled eggs, do you, you pagans? Surely not. I don't care what you call them, they got a little paprika on them, all right? Don't, don't be serving them without some paprika. Gives it that little spice. Okay. Luke 24, starting in verse 1, but on the first day of the week, 
At early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word and the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him saying, stay with us for it's getting toward evening. And the Day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with him, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They begin to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Praise God for his word. Amen. Let's look at verse 1 together. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing spices which they had prepared. Now, verse 10 tells us who three of these women were, right? It's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joanna. Now, I've often wondered if the other women that, that were with them, there's these other women mentioned unnamed, 
I've often wondered if these other women were perhaps the wives of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You might be wondering, why would you think that? Well, John 19 says it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who originally had approached Pilate about taking down Jesus' body, says that they prepared his body for burial, and they're the ones that laid it in the tomb. And I'm just wondering, now these, this group of ladies is headed back to the tomb with more supplies to do what it seems like was the thing that was already done by Joseph and Nicodemus. And, and I'm just maybe wondering if their wives were in the crew saying, ladies, look, you know our husbands didn't do that, right? We, we gotta go, we're going to have to go back and kind of tighten this up a little bit, right? <laughs> How many husbands in here think that might be possible? Well, keep your hands down. I'd probably just set you up for the okie doke. Don't answer that. I'm, I, I just think maybe, maybe some of the other women were those wives, possibly. And that's why they were headed back to tidy things up a bit, okay? Verses two through seven. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They were perplexed about this. And then two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. It's interesting, I think that the tender love of God for those who may struggle with doubt is so evident in these verses. I'm wondering how many of us have have thought long about why the stone was rolled away. Here's one thing we can say for sure. The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. That was not necessary. Why do we know that? Well, first of all, the account in other gospels of, of how the, the burial cloths were found, it wasn't as if someone struggled and unwrapped them. It, they, they were laid very much as if the body just came up through them. You might say, well, what does that mean? Well, it, it, it's the same idea as what we see in John 20 when there's a recording of all the disciples being together in a room with the doors locked for fear of those who had crucified Jesus. And the Bible basically just says, and Jesus appeared makes a point to tell us the doors were locked, and then all of a sudden, the master pops up. What does that mean? That means, I don't know everything about the resurrected body. I don't know everything about what's going to happen. I don't know if we have flight. I don't know what the deal is. I got hopes, but that doesn't matter. Here's what I do know. Resurrected bodies don't need doors. Resurrected bodies aren't worried about stones in front of tombs. Okay? So the, <laughs> the stone did not move so that my master could get out. All right? Verse 31, we just read here, right? He breaks the bread, their eyes are opened, and what happens? He vanishes from their sight, okay? So Jesus did not need the stone moved. It wasn't, he wasn't in there knocking like, hey, angels, can you get this out of my way? Oh, no, 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 no. So what is it? It was so these women, and it was so the disciples could get in. It was an invitation to come and see, to verify, to set their eyes upon the miracle of the resurrection, to confirm. You see, God is not a God that demands ignorant faith. He calls us to a reasonable faith. And there's great mercy for those who may be struggling with doubt. You see that in the tenderness and in the the, the gentleness, not just in this situation. I mean, Shouldn't it, let's, let's change the scene. Let's say the women walk up to the tomb. The stone is still rolled in front and you have two men in dazzling clothing say, 
He's not here. He is alive. Shouldn't the testimony of two angels be enough? I think it probably should. But God is not, he's not concerned with questions. He, he, he isn't afraid of the, the doubt that may come as we try to wrap our minds around the incredible nature of his supernatural power. He knows he blows our minds sometimes. And he doesn't want us to turn our brains off or be ignorant when it comes to assessing these things. The stone is rolled away so they can come in and they can see for themselves. So they can give eyewitness testimony to the condition of the tomb where just three days before they saw, these same women saw the body of our master laid. It's significant. Look at also how Jesus dealt with Thomas. If you're not familiar with the story, Thomas who is often called Doubting Thomas. I'm not sure how fair that is. There's another place in the Gospels where basically when Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem, everyone forgets this part. You know, there's, Thomas makes this comment. It's kind of brief, and I think that's why it doesn't get a lot of airtime. But Thomas basically says, well, let's go, with, let's go die with him. That's basically what they, they, they thought was going to happen because they already knew everybody was after Jesus. So that's where Thomas was at then. But he comes to the point where he makes this statement that I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to believe that he rose from the dead until I place my finger into the wounds. And what, what response would you expect from a perfect, holy God, mighty enough to rise up out of the grave to that almost kind of insolent comment? You, you would expect probably harsh rebuke, perhaps a, a little backhand to the temple maybe would even be justified, would it not? And what, what, but what is Jesus' response? Come here, Thomas. Come touch the womb. That matters to me. I hope it matters to you. It shows me something about the incredible, long-suffering, patient mercy of my God. I'm real thankful for that. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 together. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. What words? This is the words of the women coming back and saying, Jesus isn't there, and we talked to some angels. <laughs> okay? But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. It doesn't even say yet that Peter has bought the whole thing. He's marveling at all of this. Okay? So what does is, what is this show us? Well, I think one thing, if, if we apply a little bit of logic to it, is that if the apostles of Jesus wanted to be head honchos of some new religion that they were cooking up, and, and they just wanted to use maybe the notoriety Jesus had engendered for himself to kind of get this thing going, if that was the goal, if that was what was really happening here, which is the only other explanation other than this stuff is all true, Right? Either the apostles were hucksters that lied about the resurrection of Christ, that lied about his teachings, that lied about his crucifixion. It's either that or this stuff really happened. So then you have to start to ask, okay, so what, were, what was their angle? Why would they lie about this? Why would they lie about this all the way to a martyr's death for all of them except for John? You know, in John, they boiled in oil. They just couldn't kill him. He was a tough old bird. So they kicked him out to Patmos, right? And Jesus visited him, gave him the book of Revelation. So... What, what's, the, what's the end game? What's the, what's the angle there? Well, <clears throat> man, if that's what they were doing, it also, they, they sure didn't paint themselves as very great examples to follow, did they? 
Because here, if, if I'm cooking up a religion, I want you to respect me and follow me and get me, you know, I want you to listen to what I have to say. I'm, I'm not going to let be the, the official recordings of what happened. We're going to maybe just leave out the part where the women came with eyewitness testimony that Jesus' tomb was empty and some angels told him he's not here, he's risen. And we all said, that's nonsense. We might just skip that part and fast forward to the, the, the you know, something else if we were going to try to doctor this story up. And that's part of what, that's, when I look throughout the scriptures, there's just, you don't see the kind of whitewashing you would expect of, of the heroes <laughs> if this thing was, was made up. Just something else, I think, for us to consider as we contemplate today, not only the wonder of the resurrection, but the reasonableness of the resurrection. Amen. Verses 13 through 35. I'm going to read this all to you again. And behold, two of them were going that very day to the village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking, sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem, unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Let's stop there for a moment. I think again, we see the tender patience of Jesus in verse 19. And it's also really no surprise to me that I, I have never once met someone named Cleopas. Anybody in here, give me your hand up if you've na- met someone named Cleopas. I mean, praise God for brave parents if it happens, I, whatever. But Cleopas, it's not a good look, right? Because Cleopas here, it, what, what do we just read Cleopas do? Man, he sass mouthed the Savior. <laughs> Man, what, what, do you, what do you expect to happen when you sass mouth the risen, eternal Son of God? You, <laughs> where's the lightning? You know what I'm like? You don't sass mouth him. This is the King of creation, man. And what does he do? I, I, you know, I imagine here in my mind maybe a little bit of a deep breath on the part of the master. What things? <laughs> right? <laughs> Probably not, because he's far better than I am, but boy. But again, do you see it? Do you see the tenderness, the patience, the long-suffering, the love of God as he's willing to let this play out and, 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 and be patient with our foolishness? In verse 21, we see that they were hoping for something. Look at that, starting in 20. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. See, they, they were hoping for something, friends, but they, they didn't yet see that what God was doing was much more than they could have ever possibly imagined. They had in view a kind of political rescuing of the nation of Israel from 
the thumb of their oppressors. That was basically what they thought the, the, the Old Testament prophecies were about, what the purpose of the Messiah was about. That was, that was kind of what they saw as, man, if, if they did that, that would say so much about the might of our God. But they, they didn't realize that the, God's scope of the thing was so much bigger. He wasn't just trying to rescue the people of Israel. He came to rescue the world. He didn't try to do anything. He did it. Far more above than they would have even asked or imagined. That sounds familiar. Then Jesus preaches a sermon to them. And and friends, I hope that this sermon is recorded somehow, recorded for us to read, or I I don't know if there's like supernatural, like 4K video playback in eternity. I'm kind of hoping that's a thing, you know, where I can go back and just check stuff that happened in history. Uh, but, But I want to read or watch or hear this sermon that Jesus preached so bad. I, I am. I am genuine. I don't care necessarily. It's, I don't. If it can be a heavenly scroll. It can be a. It can be a Holy Ghost video. I don't care. But I need the content of this thing. I want to see it. I want to hear it. Because of the content. Because of what the the scriptures tell us was in there. Right. What is it? So we're in verse twenty seven now. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. And so it's not just the content that makes me hope upon hope I get a chance to have a look at this thing or to hear it at some point, but it's also the effect. It's not just the content, but it's the effect that this sermon from the master to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus that it had. What is the effect? Well, friends, let me remind you Looking at verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Our hearts were burning within us. Man, what was in this sermon, right? What did Jesus show them that they had missed for the entirety of their history? What What did Jesus show them that I've yet to see? I expect that it's a lot. But it set these men on fire. And friends, I want to remind us that there's there's a warning to one of the churches in Revelation about love growing cold. And I want us to be honest about the fact that that can happen to us in a variety of ways. It's often some kind of distraction or discouragement. But friends, there is, there is no better time than right now to ask the Holy Spirit to blow upon the coals of our heart and to set it ablaze once more with passionate devotion to our Savior King. And the premise I want to lay before you is there is, there is no other fitting reaction. Anything less is missing the mark of what it is we're really looking at here, of what it is has really happened, of what God has shown us about himself and his passion for us. Nothing less than a heart ablaze with the same kind of passion, reflecting back to a God who loves us this much, who's been this patient with us, who's been this good to us. Only that will do. an intentional and humble assessment of whether or not our hearts are ablaze with love for Jesus is the first step. 
I said an intentional and a humble assessment. How do I do that? How do I see my own heart? Oh, friends, I, you're right. Part of that is, is literally opening yourself up to the inspection, the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Bible says our heart is deceitfully wicked. Sometimes our own heart will trick us. Wait, I'm not supposed to follow my heart? Well, if this is the first time you're hearing it, I'm glad I'm the one that got to say it. No! We follow God and his word, and we let God and his word shape and change our hearts. Evermore molding our desires, molding our affections to be more and more set upon him and his will. Amen. And so an intentional and humble assessment of whether or not our hearts are ablaze with love for Jesus is the first step. Asking the Holy Spirit to help us fan those flames so that our gratitude and faith might grow ever more intense. That is a great prayer to pray. And then letting the precious truth of the word of God add fuel to this fire will keep us in a proper and passionate pursuit of living ever closer to our creator, of living in ever closer relationship to our creator. In the Psalms, there's this line that talks about dwelling in the shadow of the almighty. I've thought about that. How close do I have to be to live in his shadow? That's pretty close. That's like close enough to be able to reach out and touch, touch the hem of his garment maybe. Right there. And friends, that's where I want to be. But can I be honest with you? Sometimes distraction and discouragement, it, it, it means that I'm not. Sometimes I don't have the kind of passion that seems only fitting as we really understand what God has done for us in Christ. But I want to. I want to be honest about it first, and I want to know that if I realize that's the case, that I don't want to play the enemy's game of going into condemnation about it, that's never God's point. Because what does condemnation do? It, it takes me and it, it shoves me in the wrong direction, further away from him. God's beckoning call is always come. Come closer. Come broken. Come just like you are. Let me love you, change you, shape you. Make you more like me. Shape you and reshape you. Cut away the things that are harming you. Help you stop being a horse in a tree. And so what I want to do, my, my hope is, as we're hearing this, my hope is as we're contemplating these things, we are opening ourselves to the inspection and instruction of the Holy Spirit that even as we're sitting here and we're receiving the word of God, we're offering prayers to God. We're offering prayers, intentional, humble prayers to the Holy Spirit that he would fan those flames, that he would help us to blow upon the coals of our hearts, that our hearts would be ablaze. But I also want to imagine with you what surely will pale in comparison and will surely be a mini version of this sermon on the road to Emmaus. And my hope is that as we consider the connection and the continuity of the scriptures and how they point to Jesus, that our hearts, like these two disciples on the road, will burn within us, just like those two brothers. It worked for them. What was it? What did Jesus do? What does it say? He went through the scriptures and he told them and he pointed out everything in there that was pertaining to him. Seven mile walk's a long walk. They had some time. I don't have seven miles worth of walk time, but I'm going to take a crack at it. Amen? 
I already, I already hemmed myself in to getting you to your ham, okay? I promise we're going to get there. But let's take a minute and with our imaginations, and this, this can't be the full thing for sure, but let's, let's imagine together. Let's think about what, if that's what Jesus did, went back into the scriptures and what was he talking about? He says he started with Moses and the prophets. That doesn't just mean the story of Moses. It means the writings of Moses. What are the writings of Moses? The Pentateuch, right? The first five books. And then all the prophets. What is, what, what is that really saying? It's saying Jesus went into the Hebrew scriptures, what we often refer to as the Old Testament. And he walked them through the thing and said, here's, where you thought, here's what you thought this meant. Well, let me help you with something. Let me show you what it's really pointing to. And they didn't even know it was him yet. I mean, there had to have been a reason for that. Probably because they, they, they'd have been too excited to listen. And I believe it was important. I, we, we, we know Cleopas was one of these guys. I don't know who the other one was. But as these guys went back and shared this, I, I believe this was part of the foundation of biblical teaching that was able to thrust the church forward. Because they went back and they, what did they do? I'm, and I'm going to say this again in a minute and, and when come to a point of application. But as, as soon as Jesus vanished and they realized it was him, it said that hour, they got up and they beat feet back to Jerusalem to recount what had happened. Now, I believe much of this teaching that Jesus gave them was then shared. And this, this is part of the foundation of what would take this gospel news about Christ and cause it to explode in the ancient world. It's important. Here's what I'm saying to you. I, I know this because of this account. And the way the scriptures lay this out, but I also know this from personal experience. I can tell you, I can remember the point in my life where the Bible went from a fragmented set of stories that I had heard, and I started to be able to see, somebody started to show me how there is a, a crimson gospel thread that weaves through the entire thing, that there is a connection and a continuity, and that this whole thing is always pointing us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to his person and work. When that, when that started to click, friends, I'm telling you, the fire stoked. And I was already excited about Jesus before that. I already thought he was cool. But I'm trying to tell you something. This, there's a reason why this was the sermon on the road to Emmaus. It's a reason why Jesus took this approach with these men. So what, what could it have been? If we're starting with the writings of Moses, that starts all the way back at Genesis. I can imagine Jesus saying to these brothers, you guys, you guys, of course, you remember the story of creation and you remember the story of our first parents falling. And then the Lord spoke to Adam and then he spoke to the woman and he told the woman, there's a seed that's going to come. that's going to crush the head of the serpent. You guys know, you didn't really know what that meant, but what I'm trying to tell you is that was pointing to Jesus. And then God went further and he, and he took some animals and he sacrificed them. And he covered those naked, shameful people with the animal skins. That was also pointing forward to the fact that the Messiah was going to have to die, that the Messiah was going to be the final sacrifice, that his blood was going to be the last that needed to be shed for the full and final forgiveness of God's people. 
He could have pointed him to Noah's Ark, said, you guys thought you knew what that meant, right? But, but listen to me, Noah's Ark, it was covered with pitch, same root word, that covering with pitch as atonement. And, and the Ark had one door. There was only one way in. And when Noah brought his family up into the Ark, it saved them from the destruction that sin had brought upon the earth. Is anything starting to ring a bell? The Ark wasn't just a story about a boat and some animals and a rainbow. The ark was pointing forward to the coming Messiah. You guys probably didn't see that before. You guys know the story of our father Abraham, how he yearned for a child and an heir, thought he was going to have to give all that he had to Eleazar, his servant, felt misery over it. And then in his old age, waiting long enough so that there could be no natural explanation for it, God grants him a miracle baby, a supernatural conception with his wife Sarah in his old age. That's starting to point you guys maybe towards this Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary. Not only did he have a miracle son, but years later, the Lord came to him and asked him for that son. And so Abraham, reasoning in his mind, not able to understand how God's promise that through this son of his, all the nations of the world were going to be blessed, that through the line and through the, through the, the, the nation that was going to come through and out of his son Isaac, that all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And now God's asking him to take that son and to sacrifice him. Abraham can't figure out that calculus, but the book of Hebrews tells us here's what he knew. God will be faithful to his promise. And so basically, bottom line, if God actually lets me sacrifice this boy, he's going to have to raise him from the dead because God promised me. Abraham, the man of faith, marches with his son who up the hill of the mountain, carrying the wood for the sacrifice, gets up to the altar and then God provides a ram so that Isaac doesn't have to die. See, see, you boys, you boys on the road to Emmaus, you thought you knew what that meant. You thought you knew what that meant, didn't you? But, but you didn't realize it was pointing forward. It was foreshadowing the fact that Christ himself was going to carry wood up a hill and was going to die in our place. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, on the run, lays down in the desert one night and has a vision of a ladder from earth to heaven and people descending and ascending. You guys didn't understand that Jacob's ladder, that ladder, the way that there was going to be connection once again, full and vibrant, the way it was intended to be before sin got in the way, that Jesus was going to come. He was going to be that ladder. And then Jacob has a son named Joseph who ends up betrayed by his brother for pieces, by his brothers for pieces of silver, thrown down into a pit and then raised back up, sold into slavery, falsely accused, punished for sins he did not actually commit, and then is raised from that place to a place of such prominence that he is in the one spot in the ancient world that he could save his family from the certain death of famine. Is any bells ringing? You guys thought you knew, didn't you boys, what the story of Joseph was really about? You thought you knew all that it was pointing to, but it was a foreshadowing of one who was coming, who would also be betrayed for silver, falsely accused, and then raised to the place where he alone could save the ones he loved. And then 400 years later, after slavery and the brutality of the Egyptians, God calls Moses to come and demand that his people be set free. There's plagues, there's pride, there's insolence. And in the end, 
There's an angel of death that comes through Egypt. But the way that angel of death stays out of the homes and the families of the Israelites, the way they are spared from the judgment, the right judgment that the sin of that land meant needed to be handed down was to take the blood of a lamb and to wipe it over their doorposts. And they were to eat that lamb for what became the Passover meal. And that had great significance to them. This was a yearly celebration. And, and they thought the totality of that thing was that God miraculously brought them out of Egypt with plagues and with a, a Red Sea splitting. To them, that, that was enough that for the rest of our days and for all of our generations, we are going to tell of the power and the goodness of our God because he freed us from Egypt, not knowing that the whole time freeing them from Egypt was pointing forward to the fact that he was going to free all of humanity from the slavery of sin. And it was going to be the blood of a lamb that was going to do it. And then they get into the wilderness and God miraculously provides manna for them to survive in a situation where absolutely they would not have survived on their own. And then they, Moses takes a staff and strikes the rock at Horeb in the middle of the desert and water that literally means life or death comes flowing out of that rock. And they were already praising, they were already thankful to God for the provision in the desert. They already thought they knew what it meant. They didn't know it was pointing forward to the bread of life and the living water that Jesus was going to bring in its fullest and final form. They knew the story of the bronze serpent. They knew the story of the insolence of their ancestors in the desert as they grumbled against God. They knew the story of the fiery serpents coming out of the desert and beginning to bite the people. They knew that God had instructed them to take a bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole, and that that would lead to the end of that period of judgment, that that would save them from the punishment that their sin rightly deserved. They thought they knew what that was. They just thought God was merciful and there was a bronze serpent, not knowing that when that thing was lifted up, it was pointing us forward to the fact that one day the master was going to be lifted up. He was going to become sin for us. He was going to have the full weight and the punishment of sin laid upon him so that we could be rescued from what we justly deserved. They knew the story of the spies going in to spy out the land and try to figure out what's going on. They, they knew the story of Rahab hiding them in the eaves of the roof. They knew that when Israel came back, the agreement was that she would take a a scarlet piece of rope and hanging out the window. And that meant the Israelites would know not to take out that family in that house. What they didn't understand was that scarlet rope meant so much more. It was pointing to the fact that one in, one, <laughs> in a time coming, not as soon as they had hoped, but in a time coming, the blood of Christ, scarlet in color, was going to flow down a cross. And that was going to mean a pardon for all who would trust in him. That scarlet rope of Rahab, it, it wasn't just about saving her family. It was pointing forward to the salvation coming for all families who would trust in Christ alone. They knew about the tabernacle. They knew all the settings and the furnishings. They knew about the curtain and the lampstand. They knew about the Ark of the Covenant. They knew about the altar of incense and all of it, but, but they, they didn't understand. That's a part I'm really excited to hear what, what Jesus said about, because I think I get a little bit of it, but man, there's, there's so much in the very way that tabernacle was constructed, the direction in which it faced, the direction in which everyone else in camp faced, all of it pointing towards 
this singular reality of God as our Savior and our hope in all things. Every single battle throughout their history that God fought for them was pointing forward to the fact that one was going to have to come to kill death for us. One was going to have to come to take the keys of death, hell, and the grave for us because we couldn't do it. So every time you're in the Old Testament reading about a battle where God has to take over and make it happen, really what it's pointing forward to is this fact that the big battle, the cosmic battle between good and evil, between sin, death, and life, and hope, Jesus was going to have to fight for us, and he did. You have an example of that? Oh yeah, David and Goliath. You know, the story where most of the time we think that the moral is I need to be brave and courageous like David. Here's the problem. Uh, I'm not David in the story. I'm an Israelite hiding in the rocks. Because here comes an enemy, so big, so mighty, so strong, everybody's shivering, no one wants to step up, no one can step up. It is hopeless. Anybody else steps up to this guy, they're gonna get laid down. But then what happens? God anoints a little ruddy guy that no one saw coming, that no one would have thought. That, this, isn't where, this isn't where we were looking for an answer, for sure. Anoints David to go out there, not, not with sword and spear, not in the armor of the king, but with a sling and some stones so that we know in the end, so we're very sure this was not something done by the hand or the strength or the swiftness of man. This was by the power of God alone. Oh yeah, David and Goliath is pointing forward to Jesus. David being the, the king and archetype of the coming Messiah. You see the selfless sacrifice of Ruth giving up her life to serve her mother-in-law and then you see her redemption by the kinsman redeemer Boaz. You guys didn't think that's just an awesome love story, did you? Come on, boys, on the road to Emmaus. You didn't see that? You see it now, don't you? You see it now. It was pointing forward to the truth and the beauty, the goodness of this gospel. You guys remember Psalm 22? You like Psalm 22, boys, don't you? Psalm 22, think about it. Think about what you remember Jesus, the, the accounts of what Jesus said on the cross the other day as it was happening. Think about the description of Psalm 22 and what's said there. Is anything ringing a bell? Do you think perhaps Psalm 22 was pointing forward to the suffering you now saw Jesus go through? You know, the good shepherd of Psalm 23. How often did Jesus use that type of language to describe what he was doing? You guys didn't know, did you? That when there was a fourth man in the flames with Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, it was Jesus himself. Come on, boys. Is it, are you starting to get it? Or, I don't know where they're at, how close they are to Emmaus now, but it, he, he's not even done because he could talk to him. He said the writings of Moses, but all the prophets. So I'm talking about Messianic Psalms. I'm talking about the writings of Daniel where over and over again, he's, he's pointing forward to this future hope of a prince and Messiah that will come. And what was Jesus doing? He's going throughout the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures showing these guys, you thought that meant this, but I'm telling you, it was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to him. He's the fulfillment of all these things. He's the fulfillment of all you've been looking for, all you've been hoping for, and way more. You didn't know to hope for what this actually means. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, it wasn't just Daniel. The suffering Savior spoken of in Isaiah Boys, it's him. Don't you see it's him? 
Jesus hadn't even let the cat out of the bag yet that he's the one giving the sermon. So he's saying, don't you guys see? Look at the Hebrew scripture. Look, look at what this says. And then look at what Jesus said. Look at what happened here. And then look at what happened here. Look at what was done here. And then look at what was done here. Are you guys starting to see? And we see what happened. We see the results. Their hearts were burning within. They couldn't figure out why, but their hearts, as Jesus shared this, was burning within them. As they begin to see, this, this wasn't just about some fragmented set of moral stories that we should try to aspire to, but that God, in his perfect faithfulness and in his might and power, was unfurling a plan of redemption the entire time. His power, his might, his majesty on display. And here's the question I have for you, friends. What, what did they do? What did they do when they realized their hearts had been set ablaze by the master himself? What was the reaction? Let's look at verse 33 again in case we've forgotten. Let me, let me just, let me, I'm going to start with 32. They said to one another, <laughs> Jesus breaks the bread. It's him. Boom, he's gone. Like, that's funny. First of all, I'm, if I get a chance to respectfully ask, like, Lord, what was, what was that about? <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to get off track. They, so here's what happened. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And as soon as this realization hits them, what happens? They get up that very hour and return to Jerusalem found, gathered together the 11 and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen, has appeared to Simon. And they begin to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Here's what I'm saying, friends. As we're rejoicing in the resurrection today, as we're looking at this language of, of, of hearts set ablaze, in realization of the goodness and the worthiness of Christ to be worshipped. The grand plan of God's redemption. All of it. As, as we're looking at that and as we're, we're, we're letting the, the, the bar be set for what it looks like. What proper response to that really looks like. We're being encouraged. We're, we're being shown again all that we have to be thankful for. One of the things that we're going to see if our, as our hearts continue to grow in terms of the, the power and, and the, the brightness and the heat of that flame that comes in thankfulness and gratitude, in awestruck wonder in all that God has done. Part of what happens is, is that can't be contained. It's not something that you can just hold up. One of the prophets said, it's like I, it's like I got fire in my bones. What am I saying? I'm saying part of, part of how we know that our hearts are ablaze is that we, we feel compelled. We almost can't help ourselves to get out and let somebody else know this story of Jesus, this story of the entirety of the scriptures, this story of God's plan of redemption, of his great love and long-suffering patience for us. That's part of what it looks like to have a heart that is ablaze. Sometimes people think that means a lot of different things, and it can mean a lot of different things, but one of the things it's gonna mean, friends, is that I'm going to have a hard time keeping quiet. And I know some of you right now, there's, there's pushback because you're like, yeah, okay, that's great, man, but have you been out in the world lately? 
Have you walked around out here and seen what it's like to try to share about this stuff? Have you, have you experienced some of the scorn and the mocking that might come? Have you seen the level of indifference there is to this incredible good news? Friends, I, I assure you that I have. But can I help us? Can, can, can we maybe potentially reframe that? Because if the analogy here is hearts set ablaze, if Malachi says the very presence of God is a, is a refining fire, and if Ephesians 3, Paul prays this prayer, and he talks about the very presence of Christ dwelling in us. If what it is, if God's intention in saving us is not just to rescue us, but to set us ablaze, what kind of situation do you want to go into if you want to spread a fire? Because I know it seems dry out here. I know it seems like dry bones and dry sticks and there's not a lot of willingness to talk about or accept or hear or any level of excitement about what you might have to share about Jesus. But friends, let me help you with something. Dry sticks catch quicker. We just need to trust that it's not going to be about our winsomeness. It's not going to be about whether or not we have the right arguments prepared. Really what it comes down to is, is, is my heart actually ablaze with love and passion for Christ? Because the power of God is, is something that it, it, it is not dependent upon my wisdom. It's not dependent upon my even being right about this, that, or the other thing, or, or any of my schemings or how I would try to accomplish something. The power of God is what brings salvation to people. The power of God is what opens people's hearts to be able to be excited and struck with awe at the reality that they could be a sinner as lost as they are, but that Jesus has made a way for them to be found. It's the power of God. And so friends, the hope is today that our hearts will be ablaze. And my hope for us is that we will never, ever settle for some lukewarm, half-hearted relationship with our God. My prayer, friends, is that our hearts burn bright and with ever-growing passion. How do, how, how do I know if I'm on the right path with God? Friends, is your love for him growing? This is not a static thing you understand. We're talking about an infinite God. We're talking about a God that if you spent all of your mental capacity, all of your ability to contemplate anything focused on his goodness, focused on the wonder of his majesty alone, you will never reach the end, you understand. Part of how eternity is going to be a lit party forever is we never reach the end of reasons to worship him. Him, himself, the glory of his gospel, angels still long to look in this very moment into the depths of all it means that God would create us and love us so much as to save us when we rebel against him. And that he would do it like this. It's amazing. It's incredible. And so the hope is that our passion is ever growing. I want to love my master more tomorrow than I do today. Was that something I'm just going to do by my willpower? No, 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 no. But it's at least a posture that I want to stand in. It's a prayer I want to pray. I want to ask for God's help, that it would be true of me. And may this passion be ever-growing. This is my prayer for us today. As we continue forever contemplating his unmatched passion for us. And friends, that's really what it comes down to. Our love for God, our passion for him is only ever going to be a reflection of love and passion that he poured out on us first. He's never asking us to do something he's not shown us how to do. He showed us how to love. He showed us how to lay down everything 
in passionate sacrifice for the good of another. He went first. And now we get the great honor and privilege of following. May your hearts be ablaze. May my heart be ablaze for the glory of our King. In Jesus' name. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you that these two disciples decided to walk the road to Emmaus. Thank you, Lord, that you joined them there and in great patience listened to what they thought they knew and then you told them what they didn't. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that as we look through the scriptures, as we look through the entirety of your word, with the eyes that only faith can give us, the eyes of these men, they were constrained from seeing you, but Lord, we stand in a place of such privilege in the timeline. God, please forgive us for the times that we, 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 we groan and we, we bemoan the time and place where you've put us because we think it's maybe harder than other times or it seems like there's so much more difficulty when it comes to obeying you in our time. Lord, we stand in a place of being able to look back into the fullness, the totality of your word. We get to see things that our ancestors in the faith couldn't see. We stand in a place of privilege that Abraham didn't have, and yet he believed you wholeheartedly. God, help us. Standing in this place of privilege, seeing the fullness and the crescendo of your gospel unfolded. May we stand in a place of never-ending gratitude, and may it push us towards a passionate pursuit of your presence for all the days of our life. Thank you that we've been set free to this. Thank you that we've been set free from a life meandering about looking for some kind of purpose. Lord, you have already granted us access to that pearl of great price. You have given us the greatest treasure any human will find. We know what we're here for. We know what your purposes for us are. And now we get to walk it out in the power of your might and with your help. Thank you that that's true. Thank you for the freedom that that brings, the joy that that brings. It's only found in you. We love you, but only because you loved us first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot mylovecitychurch dot org